So we love to open God's Word and, um, and study together and look at what God has to say and, um, and do that together. I want you to think for a moment uh, just in terms of wisdom and uh, where, where you gain knowledge, where you gain understanding. And um, this started long ago and people are doing all kinds of studies on it, constantly measuring the brain and trying to figure out how we ascertain um, information and knowledge and, and how that all kind of fits together. Um, we have several animals in our household and really from an early age you can actually begin to learn things from animals. Animals teach us certain kinds of things. Um, this is, this is a, a, a really good one. A lot of, a lot of the things that we learn uh, from animals uh, come from experience, don't they? You just kind of start to figure some things out. Uh, never trust a dog to watch your food. Here's another one. Puppies still have bad breath even after eating a Tic Tac. That's true, I think. Um, another one is this. If you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. Naomi has figured that out and, and learned it well. Uh, one of the other areas that, that we learn from, um, we learn from our parents and from those who, who raised us. Um, Michael's got some wisdom for us. Never tell your mom her diet's not working. Um, that's just a good one to write down, kids. Uh, keep that one in mind. Uh, Steve, age 11, has figured something out that when your dad is mad and asks, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. He's not really looking for, for an answer there. Um, Another one is that when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush her hair. You know, okay, mom, you know, I'm, I'm good. Uh, and finally, um, you know, do not pull on dad's finger when he tells you to. Emily, Emily just went through the experience of that and, and figured it out. So a lot, of our, you know, a lot of our wisdom that we get comes through experiences that we have. Um, and then you walk into a church and you think about God, you think about theology, you think about some of these other questions. And, um, and we even can learn things with uh, religion kinds of things, with, uh, you know, never try to baptize a cat. That's, uh, that's just good information. I've never tried it, but I would, I would take Eileen's word for it that it's not good. How about these kinds of questions? Where, where did I come from? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? What happens to me when I die? Those are, some, those are now the questions that you get into and you say, well, those don't seem quite so kid-like. And you can't necessarily experience that and, and learn some kind of definitive answer. And so people are asking these kinds of questions. And there's certain times in our lives when these rise to the forefront and become really important. And then really through whole seasons of life, we don't think about this sometimes. Many people go through chunks of time even trying to avoid thinking about those kinds of questions because there just aren't any easy answers. But what, what that sounds like to me, if, if when I hear those kinds of questions, and I haven't traveled a ton, but I've traveled in a handful of countries, and people are asking these kinds of questions in Beijing right now. I happen to know that for a fact. And in Mexico, they're pondering these kinds of questions. And down in Australia, little, little junior high minds are, are wrangling through and thinking through these kinds of questions, wondering about these kinds of topics. And as I've gone around the world a little bit, um, it, it, it dawns on me and it occurs to me and it, it begins to really solidify in my mind that we are eternal beings asking questions that don't just, don't just get answered by our senses. They don't just get answered by trial and error. You know, having a dog watch your food going, nope, that's just not working. I love the peanuts where, you know, I think Charlie Brown's trying to bend a cracker and he just comes to the conclusion after all these crackers, crackers don't bend, you know. There's some things we can figure out that way, and there's a whole slew of things that we can't. Here's where it gets really confusing for all of us, though, is that many authorities claim truth. 
Many authorities claim this is the right way to go. No, 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 this is the right way to go. And there's all these voices that come at us as an authoritative voice on what is truth. And so we're left a little bit like this going, I just don't even know where to start or which way to go. Every way kind of seems wrong. Um, according to the Bible, and I'm going to obviously be teaching from a biblical worldview uh, today, um, we're going to take a look at just kind of a, a, a pulled back, big picture look at what God has to say about some of the questions that we just um, took on. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but, but as you go through life, you've, you've maybe been fed some answers that didn't measure up. Maybe they happened in Sunday school. Maybe they happened in the church. And someone gave you kind of a, a pat answer, and you're like, yeah, but there's more to that. And then maybe you've gone somewhere else. And I was taught some things in school growing up that I was like, that just doesn't add up. And I don't know how you keep a straight face saying that and really believing that. And as I've gone through life, maybe like you, I've gone through and I've kept having this hunch that this isn't all just a haphazard mess. That there is a point to this. I look around at movies that really, really grab my heart and my mind and imagination and I think I gravitate toward movies um, that, that, that communicate that in the end, there really is a point to things. And that while in the middle, things just seemed all screwy and you didn't know which way was up, in the end, it kind of, it kind of shaped up. How many of you are, are uh, Lost fans out here? Anyone, anyone watch Lost? Okay. Lost has, I think, is, are we down to seven episodes? Is that right? Something like that. Here's their big campaign right now. The time for questions is over, and now is the time for answers. Well, they've been saying that for like three episodes, and at the end of each episode, me and Becky look at each other like, what? Like they keep, they're still drumming up questions for us to ask about this TV show, but after, I don't know what it is, six seasons or whatever it's been, these, these poor castaways, it's kind of like Gilligan's Island, but a little bit more modern and cool. Um, but these, these castaways are here, and all these things are going on, and we've invested time into watching this TV show, and, and we're assuming, we're hoping, in fact, that there is an author to all of this. And that, and that this really is going somewhere. And they're not just going to, at the end, the, you know, the last episode, just go, well, there you go, it's over. And no answers kind of get tied up. And, and the thing is, we, we like that. Lost is a huge show to people because we kind of feel like those characters, don't we? We want answers and they're not coming fast enough. And in our real world time, we're just going, man, what is, what is going on? What is going on with my life? What's around the next bend? Why did this happen? And so we're, we're kind of marching our way through. Many people hear this, and I think sometimes Christians do a disservice to the gospel by, by stating that the answer is Jesus dying on a cross. It is? And I think the, the response to that can be either disgust, like that's really gross, uh, if you've ever seen a crucifixion, which I've not seen one personally, but, but, but there have been depictions and you can study the ancient art of torture and killing with crucifixion. It's disgusting. And so the answer is a disgusting way of killing a person. So it, it, it can range from disgust to just confusion to just kind of backing up thinking this person's really out of touch. That somehow the answer, capital A, is, is Jesus dying on a cross. And you see, that really kind of makes no sense if we haven't kind of seen the, the bigger picture. So here's what we're kind of wrestling with this morning, is what, what did Jesus do on the cross? Clearly central to the Christian faith is, is the physical, bodily death of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the Son of God, dying on a cross, 
and then three days later, rising again. I don't know how many of you did something for Good Friday, but I find it interesting. We have a, a culture that is, that is rapidly getting more and more secular, and some people really like put their dukes up about that. That's just kind of the, the nature of things. I understand that. Europe's been doing that for a long time. But the New York Stock Exchange was, was closed on Good Friday. There are still some observances in our culture that say something significant happened on Good Friday. A lot of people don't know what. They go, I, I know we got a half day today, but I'm not really sure why. And I know that we're supposed to be doing something today, so let's all head out to Mimi's this morning and all grab brunch together. But I'm not entirely sure the whole story. I know there's a Jesus component into all of this. So we want to kind of look at, uh, at what we're celebrating here today. Here's the short, straightforward answer to kind of the, the big picture of, of God. And, and this is Bible, kind of like you know, Genesis to Revelation in a few short minutes. First is that God is holy and good. Secondly, the Bible says that he's, He creates life and all that we know, and He proclaims it good. Thirdly, a curse comes on the world. This curse is brought on by the choice of the first man and woman. Um, moving on, this curse, sin, affects everyone, all people, all time, all creation, and its effect is deadly. It's not just a bummer, it leads to death. That's what this curse is all about. Next, as a sovereign, holy God, He will judge, which means to correct, punish, and make right sin. He will pronounce correct judgment on this curse. Next, God provides a remedy or a rescue in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son, dying on the cross. And lastly, there is coming a day when this judge, this sovereign, is going to make all things right. And everything that's under subjection to this curse, creation, the created people, and sin and the, the cosmos, it's all going to be made right again. Now, that's the Bible. We, we can all leave now. That's basically, I just preached Genesis to Revelation, and that's, and that's the whole deal. Here's what's interesting, though. We tend to be a, a people who like to uh, artificially manufacture things so that we still get, you know, taste great, less filling. You know, we like to, we like to have our cake and eat it too. And so we've, we've used our brain and our smarts and our wisdom that we've gained to kind of manufacture things. And here's, what, here's what's happened a little bit, I think, in the modern church. For sure, in the hearts of modern people, is that we, we tend to think of the idea that we like this story except for certain parts of it. If we could take sin and evil and fear and hate and all of that junk and just not have it be in the picture, it would be a much better picture. So it's kind of the, it's kind of the taste great, less feeling gospel. And here's what it looks like. Here's what you're left with. God is holy and good. He creates life and all that we see it. And it is good. Skip down. God provides the remedy, the answer in Jesus Christ, His Son, dying on a cross. And one day, He's going to make everything right. Here's the problem with that. Is that while we've removed sin, which we don't like talking about, it's yucky, it's gross, and it makes us feel bad. We've, we've stripped the cross of its meaning, and we've taken the, the value of the gospel totally away. And all of a sudden, this answer that we have, that Jesus died on a cross, and that's the answer? We've, we, we've taken that and, and given people at least a couple of responses. The first response is this. Some people would say um, to that, man, I, I love that story. And I love not talking about sin and the cross and, I, and, and about these, these kind of yucky things. And they're just... 
I mean, they're just the kind of classic church people. And they've just got kind of this pasted smile on. And life goes along. And, and they, it's all good. It's all about doing good. It's all about trying to, to be good to your neighbor. And you know what ends up happening with that? What ends up happening with that is it doesn't take very long for any one of us who've played that game, who've tried that route, who've tried to just go, I'm supposed to love my enemy, and you certainly are my enemy. So God bless you, brother. And inside you're like, I can't stand you. You know, and you've just got this thing on, but the, the smile starts to get more and more tense. And right down here in your jawline, we start to, to see what's really going on in our hearts. And, and the problem walking that road is that the evil isn't just out there, is it? All we do is we just start to turn inward and we say, I cannot get rid of the bitterness that I have. I cannot get rid of this sense of injustice that I'm trying really hard to spread around good and people keep doing me wrong. And so there becomes this kind of veneer that says, it's all good. And we, and we kind of perpetuate this thing, but inside we're churning and we know that that's not really the case. There's a second response to people who hear of nothing of the sin and nothing of the curse and jump straight to the answer, which is the cross and Jesus dying on it. And that is this. They, they, they come to uh, church once a year because they can't stand coming any more than once a year because it all seems like so cheery good and so bury your head in the sand. For this person, they look around and they say, yeah, but I have been wronged. Yeah, but there is evil in the world. Yeah, but there is hatred perpetrated against me. And frankly, if I'm honest, I'm kind of perpetrating against other people. And so what about all of that? And so they start to wrangle with this. And sometimes they go to churches that aren't preaching the gospel and they can't find the answers they're looking for. Because they've heard about the cross. They've tried saying, I believe in it, but it's just not working. And so they start to come to these kinds of conclusions. Things are broken and evil. Therefore, God either doesn't exist, God doesn't care, He's not good, or He's not all-powerful. And it must be one of those because it's not working for me here. And so what they do is they just keep God and theology and the church and church people and the cross at arm's distance. And maybe they'll come to church once a year kind of to appease the family and not have a massive fight on Sunday afternoon. But that's about it. And in some ways, I think taking the gospel and trying to force it into gospel light, we've enabled those two responses to gain some traction and have some, some viability to them. People flock to or avoid the church for kind of these two ends of the extreme. And guess what? Both camps are under the curse still. The Bible clearly teaches that. That you're still under the curse if that's your scenario. I want to have us turn this morning uh, to 1 Corinthians. And we're just going to turn to one passage this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, shoot your hand up and someone in the back will, will get you one. Um, otherwise, you can listen carefully. This idea that Jesus died on a cross and the subsequent empty tomb only become meaningful events as we, as we look to the Scriptures and as we understand the Gospel and what's going on. If we don't understand the danger that we're in, then the answer uh, just doesn't make any sense. I want to read from you from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 2. 
I want you to catch two words here in particular. One is the word saved, excuse me, and the second is the word sin. The very things that we sometimes don't like to talk about or don't like to think about, that we need saving and that there is, in fact, sin. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this, By this gospel you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's code for dead. Verse 7, Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, The last of all, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. We won't go into abnormally born here, but you can read Acts 9 and sort of start to get a sense of why Paul is calling himself abnormally born. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of sin, which the Bible clearly lays out starting in the very beginning of the Bible that that's separation from God and leads to death, both physical and spiritual. It lays out very clearly here that um, for, for those who would think that this is a symbol or this becomes kind of a, a symbolic uh, you know, sign of something good that someone did long ago and therefore we are to metaphorically be doing good for people and that sort of thing is to not read the Scriptures seriously. It's just to listen to passed on traditions of men. It doesn't sound to me like Paul is saying that this was kind of a, a metaphorical thing. This is sounding to me like Paul really believes because he did that Jesus did in fact die according to the scriptures that he was in fact buried you don't bury live people according to the scriptures and that in fact he rose again bodily physically in the flesh on the third day according to the scriptures we cannot separate the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the Christian faith and still have a gospel by which we're saved the other thing Paul points out here, and what a great thing to do on Easter Sunday morning, is, is, to, is to talk about and look at a passage that says this is of first importance. Of all the things that we could talk about in the Christian life, of all the knowledge and wisdom that we could discuss, this is, this is tops. This is what we will keep coming back to. And in some ways, every Sunday morning that this church gathers, in some ways, it's Easter Sunday for us. I mean, the reason that we're here is because the, the tomb is empty, right? The reason that we sing is because we know that holding to this gospel that we received that was preached to us is our path to salvation from sin. And it's not just like we got saved at one point and we haven't needed God since. It's that we got saved at one point and a week later we needed God again. And then we started realizing that in between the midweek we needed God. And so week after week, We gather as a church, and guess what we do? We hold up and proclaim this gospel. And it is of first importance in our lives, because by it we are being saved. I want to have you think back for a moment and just think when the last time it was that you realized that this world is out of order in some way, shape, or form. Maybe this last year, maybe in 2010 or 2009, you've received one of those devastating phone calls that you'll never forget where you were and what you felt the moment you got that phone call because it was so devastating. Maybe it has to do with a relationship that's, that's really, really strained. 
Maybe it's a job scenario that you never could have envisioned going on, but, man, you got the raw end of the deal. Maybe your finances are upside down right now. Maybe it's a health thing that you went in for a routine checkup and you came back going, what? Maybe on the way to church, you've been driving in a car here and you realize things are out of order. I don't want to be in conflict with my family, with my spouse, with my kids, but I am. When was the last time you realized the world was out of order? Here's what I know. I know that that's a painful question to ask. And for those hoping to just come, get a little church, get out for another year, this is the kind of thing you go, man, I don't, I don't know that I like that question. It's a painful question, but it's an honest question. And as you look through the Scriptures and you look at how a church should be, church should be the most honest place that you go every single week. I would hope that when you walk through the back doors at Neighborhood Bible Church, you'll have a hunch. You'll, you'll just know from experience that this will be an honest place. It'll be an honest place for you to respond to what God's Word is saying. And it'll be an honest place where God's Word will be taught to you in its entirety. And we won't shirk the hard parts. As I read the Scriptures, I find that, that God really welcomes some different things. God welcomes honesty and struggle and dialogue and even debate. Why, God? Why is this going on? And as I look at all of that, and I look at my own life, you know what that spells out? That spells out the word relationship. God welcomes it. God also welcomes questions in the full range of emotion and searching and longing and not settling for easy, simple, pat answers that kind of fit on a cute little card in one sentence. I would kind of sum that up as engagement. That God welcomes engagement. And finally, God welcomes messy, inconsistent, rambling, heartfelt cries. You know why? Because it's truthful. It's just authentic. And as you read through the Bible, what you find is you find real people who struggle just like us, who are eternal beings that are kind of trapped in this you know, kind of finite world, knowing there's more beyond it. Seeing the clues, but not knowing how they, they kind of all fit together. When, God? How long, O oh Lord? I mean, these are the kinds of phrases. And then Jesus enters the scene and you start to see the opposite. The opposite of relationship would be religion. Instead of knowing God and being known by God, it's putting on all sorts of airs and kind of doing these external things. It would be as if you're married, but you don't know the other person at all. But you do all the, all the stuff. You've got the bling on your finger. Uh, you kind of live in the same house and you, you share meals and you do these different things. You file your taxes together, but there's no relationship whatsoever. That's how many people treat God. It turns into religion. It turns into all this kind of duty and shell stuff that doesn't make any sense. The opposite of engagement is apathy. Eh, I don't care. Who can know this stuff? This is too hard to chew on. I'm just going to kind of live for this week and this weekend. And finally, the, op the opposite of authenticity would be hypocrisy. And weren't these the very things Jesus came and combated? These were the very things Jesus came. He reserved the strictest judgment here on earth for those who were playing a game that, it, that was called religion. Because it leads to death. Whether you're leading to death by blatant sin or whether you're running to death by playing Christianity, both of them lead to the same thing. And so Jesus combated it fiercely. <clears throat> we can blame we can diminish, we can deny, and we can justify. And I'll tell you right now, I've tried to do all of those with my sin. 
I've tried to take my junk and do every single one of the things I just mentioned with it. But you know what? The sentence remains. I'm still under the curse. And the curse is still the death penalty. We begin to understand that everyone stands condemned and wrong. And when you begin to understand that that is punishable by death, then you begin to understand the cross and the, and, and the weight of it all. I want you to take a couple uh, minutes here and just watch this short video. Every crime against humanity, every genocide, every unspeakable act of oppression and tyranny, every act of terrorism, every starving nation ignored, every drop of martyred blood, every orphan and widow abandoned, every stranger in need passed by, every deviant and perverse lifestyle, every marriage torn asunder, every word uttered in hate, every injustice, every theft, every grudge, every bitterness, every lust, every fear, every lie, every doubt, every one. Oh, the weight of the cross. Oh, the strength of the one who bears it. Once you begin to get a sense of the cross and what was accomplished on the cross, uh, you're, you're really confronted with a choice. When, when, a, when a cross is before you, there's a, there's a choice. Uh, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we inherited the curse and we also inherited the freedom to choose. That's something that, that God decided to allow, is that we would get to choose what to do with this. I want you to think for a moment of the cross and seeing the symbol of the cross a little bit like seeing a sign. And we see signs every single day. And some of you, just by your own nature and by the way that you're wired, are rule followers. And so you see a sign and it says wrong way and you go, huh, that must be the wrong way. I'm not going to go that way. Life is easier for you people. Um, There's others of of us in the room that, that see a sign and there's something in us that goes... I bet that's not true. I bet there's something beyond that wall that people don't want me to go. I'm going to go blitzing right past this sign and go and check it out. And um, let's just say it. Life is really hard for those of us who have tried to live life that way. Think of the cross as a sign. Just, Just think on signs for a moment. Signs don't really choose for you, do they? Signs just warn you. You can put up a sign that says warning, right? Wrong way. And what's interesting is there's obviously enough people who blitz right by that because they've got those tire spikes, right, that are there. For those of you who are trying to drive, you're like, oh, that applies to most people, but not me, you know. And then uh, they, they put sometimes next to a wrong way sign 
um, you know, that there's spikes there, basically like saying there's immediate punishment that you will feel if you decide to disregard this sign. Signs value really uh, hinge on their, on their truthfulness. We thought about earlier how there's a lot of people claiming to be signs and there's a lot of holy books and there's a lot of holy symbols out there and a lot of holy men and women that have made claims. And so, and so whether or not something is, is valid is whether or not it's truthful or not. And so you could see a sign that you could blitz by no problem because you absolutely know it's not true. Someone else put it up there. Finally, signs uh, are interesting because until you know the, the uh, danger, you, you probably won't heed the warning. And again, you don't have to look any further than, than, than traffic signals for this. There's a, there's a spot, there's a four-way stop near my house where all these people are coming off of 85 and it's feeding into some neighborhoods. And at that one four-way stop, on any given Monday through Friday, um, nine out of ten people are kind of rolling to a stop. We have a California stop because stops don't apply the same to us in California as other people. It means you kind of can roll to it and if it's relatively clear, you just keep going. Um, here's what's fascinating though, is that periodically, um, Saratoga's finest will, will park a car right here in, in visible plain view and they will just sit there and guess what's fascinating? Every, a 10 out of 10, I, I don't think I've ever seen someone get ticketed. 10 out of 10 people come to a stop behind the white line. They're not in a rush. They look left. They look right. They wink at the cop. They look left again. They, you know, they put their phone down, whatever. They ease through the intersection. I mean, it's safe as can be. Immediately, what they see is they see there's punishment and there's cost to them not obeying right now. And so all of a sudden, they, they decide to kind of move forward. Here's what's here's interesting about the, the wrong way sign. If you're heading in the wrong direction and there's a, there's a wrong way sign. Now remember, think of the cross as a sign. Here's what's, here's what's not needed. Here's what will not help you if you are heading in the wrong way. It will not help you to confess, make a good confession about wrong way signs. Wrong way signs are good. It will also not help you to state your, your undying belief in signs. I believe in signs. I trust that that sign is true. It also won't help for you to kind of go back and try to make up for all the signs that, that you've disregarded in the past. Here's what's needed if you have a sign in front of you that says the wrong way. Sometimes it just spells it out for you. Go back. Like, not just wrong way, you idiot. Turn around. You know what the word repent means? It means turn. Turn away from sin. Turn away from the direction you're walking and turn to God. The word repent is what's tied into going the wrong way. The cross ought to be like a sign for us saying, do you know why this is so disgusting? I know some people say, man, we can't see that bloody back. Well, you should take a look at it. It's in the Bible. And it's meant to be disgusting. And it's meant to turn your stomach because that's how God feels about sin. It turns his stomach. Every tiny white lie. We start watching that video and we say, man, I'm glad I'm not a terrorist. I'm glad I haven't done atrocities against nations. And all of a sudden it moves into every bitterness and every lust and everything that you didn't do, that forgotten person that you didn't stand up for. And all of a sudden you realize the weight of the cross is so weighty because it's everyone. All of us stand condemned. And the message of the Gospel is, is quite simple. Go back. Turn around. Repent. You, individually. Not you as a church, or you as a family, or you as a nation. The key event really to Christianity, it's interesting, because while we've latched on to the cross, 
and that's a whole other sermon, what's really the key component here is the empty tomb on Sunday morning. Because all through the ages, tons of people have, have died going to their death proclaiming to be God. Proclaiming to be the promised way. Just in our lifetime, we've got the, the Halley's Comet guy with the crazy spaced out eyes that, that led a cult. And David Koresh, who kind of barricaded himself in Waco, Waco, Texas. And, you know, he fought off the army because he was leading them to the promised land. And probably hundreds more that just weren't spectacular enough for us to realize. But only Jesus fulfilled his own prophecy in rising from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, just a few verses down from where we're just looking, says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. The hope of every Christian is the empty tomb. That's why we start our morning on Easter morning. He is risen. That's the key component. And the, and the callback is He is risen indeed. That's, why, that's what we put our stance on. That's what we hold to because we're being saved by it. That really is the good news. Band, I want to invite you to come on up. I've asked them to, to sing a song this morning that's going to just kind of grab onto this. When you hear the gospel, the good news, and someone leading with the answer of Jesus on the cross and just spitting that out, like I said, it becomes either confusing or disgusting, depending on where you're at, or just kind of wacky. But when you start to understand the, the, the sentence that we're under, the danger that we're in, it becomes literally the gospel. It becomes great news. It becomes worth singing about and writing about and studying about and thinking on and walking in. This song is called By Your Side and it, it talks about this topic we love to jump to and that is the, the boundless grace of God. But here's where the Scriptures couldn't be more clear. To just sing about the love of God, to just sing about the grace of God without this other component that says you must be found in Christ is to preach a false gospel. Is to preach to just say God just loves us all. God's grace is for us all. There's a receiving that goes on. There's a, there's a putting on of Christ and saying I trust in the finished work of Christ, and I want to be found in Christ. I want to take on His righteousness as a substitute for my unrighteousness. And only as God looks on me, clothed in the pure and holy risen Christ, do I stand before Him sinless and faultless. So as we sing about the grace of God, I would invite you to just chew on and ponder these thoughts. Think of it, guys. Well, the other, uh, the other weight of the cross is that um, for almost 2,000 years now, people, people have looked to the cross and see it as an as a ultimate sign of love. And that's why Christians have, have, have clung to it and said, man, on that definitive, objective day and moment, our, our, our love uh, was, was proclaimed by God for us. And this morning, um, I, would just, I would just throw out to you these, these closing thoughts. Um, we live in a culture that tends to sometimes shove these, these questions and concerns off until kind of a big event comes and a big moment comes. I watched a documentary just recently on, on 9-11. And I've, just, I've marveled at how September 11, uh, 2001, um, we've, we're, we've, we've 
We live in a post-9-11 world, but I feel like culturally and in some ways urgency-wise, we're back at September 10th, 2001. Just kind of coasting along. And I go, Lord, what's, what's the next 9-11 that's just going to like shock people to, uh, awake and say, and what is going on in this life? Isn't it remarkable that Haiti can come along and people can come and we are the world at, you know, version 2 and there's a lot of spotlight and it's everywhere. It's on iTunes and then, and then the, the next news story kind, kind of comes along. You know, Haiti's a mess. You know what's still a mess? Katrina's a mess. And how about the tsunamis from several years ago? And these are just the, the big global attention-grabbing things. But I think all of us have a propensity to, to say, man... I want to not be at a funeral. Because a funeral kind of confronts me with and forces me out in the open about some things. I want to not go through with personal atrocities. I want to avoid that. And this morning, I would just beg, before we move on to our festivities, and, and Easter Sunday is just a great day for family and for being together and for, and for thinking on. I, I challenged my kids. I said, the first light that you see Tomorrow morning, meaning this morning, I want you to think about what it was like to, to see and, and get the news about an empty tomb and where the disciples were at. And just like in biblical times, we're a biblical household, and so it was girls who discovered the first light, you know, initially in our home, and then they came and woke up the guys. You know, I, uh, so Briley, Briley was one of the ones who, who first thought that. She said, Daddy, I did that. I thought about that. And that's what Easter is about. I would challenge you with this thought. Stiff-arming God is scary, real, and has a day of judgment coming for it. There is a day where God will come and set everything right. And, and whatever atrocity you can think of right now, there's, there's infinitely worse waiting. And that's what the Bible teaches about it. And it's eternal. And it's real. And for some of you this morning, you might be in a place where you say, Man, I'm, I'm ready to, to make a decision. I'm ready to make a choice. What, what do I do? What must I do to be saved? I don't want to be under the curse anymore. You don't need to convince me. It's, it's, it's really, really simple. There's this idea of turning. There's a repentance that goes on. That just says, I'm no longer going to walk in life the way I've walked before, which is of my own accord. As my own Lord. As my own boss. Figuring it out on my own. Blowing past the warning signs of the cross. I'm going to turn from all that. And secondly, as I mentioned before, it's this idea of trusting in Christ. Putting on Christ. It's not just a statement of belief that says, I believe in Jesus. But rather to say, I believe that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was a substitute for my sin. That should have been me dying a putrid death that made people disgusted. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have taken a step like this this morning, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come and talk to me. I want you to come and seek me out and talk to me and let me know of your decision. If you came with someone, let them know about the decision. The very next step is that you need to get baptized. We have a baptistry hidden right behind here. We'll get you baptized next week. And that's just a public proclamation to say, I'm choosing to follow Christ from here on out. And then I would, what I would challenge you to do is take that next step and jump into a group of, of believers who are, who are striving in life to follow Jesus. 
who are being saved by this gospel. We call them community groups. On the back of your bulletin today, there's a whole list of them. Find one. Get plugged in. Maybe others of you are here and you said, man, I'm not ready to make a step like that. I'm not ready to make a decision. Here's what I would challenge you with. The next six weeks, we're going to be continuing in this series on Sunday mornings called Demanding. Here's where we're going with it. Basically, these are the demands Jesus makes on His followers. He says, here's what it is to follow Christ. The Bible has lots to say. Here's where we're going. We're going on our sexuality. What does God say about what our, what our purity is to be like and how we're to be? We're, we're, we're sexual beings. How does that look? How about in the family and in marriage relationships? How about kids to parents and parenting? How about in our relationships with other people in the community? God has given some very clear things. They've laid out some things for life. And He's passing that on. And that's where we're going these next six weeks. I would challenge you, if you've never committed to coming to church for six weeks, just commit. The next six Sundays, I'm going to commit to coming and seeing what the Bible has to say about these things. And in the midst of that, I would, I would trust that you'll be encouraged and challenged. Let me uh, pray, and then we'll um, close with a couple songs. Father, thank You for this morning. I thank You, God, for Your Word that, um, that really provokes and stirs up in me so many different things, God, ranging from comfort to reproof and everything in between. God, we thank You that You're a loving Father and that Your, um, your promise to hear us like prodigals crying out from pig slop is so profound and so remarkable. I thank You, God, that we can lay down our striving. I thank You, God, that You don't give us a pretest to get into the kingdom of God. Thank You that You've done the work. It is finished, is what You said from the cross. And in that, we rejoice this morning. There's a burden that's been lifted from us, God. We were never meant to carry the burden of our sin. Never meant to carry the cost of what it would take to get rid of the sin. Instead, Jesus, You came along and you, you, you offered a trade. And instead, You said, take My yoke upon You. It's easy to carry. And I'm by Your side the whole way. God, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for the empty tomb. We pray for Christians all around the world this morning that they would be emboldened in their faith. That they would... Remain faithful to the day of judgment. God, help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.